Well, if you would, please take your seats and turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27, then we're going to read also into chapter 2. But just to give you a, a taste of the argument of Paul's writing, this is the Word of God. Please take heed how you hear. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel." And then down in chapter 2, verse 1. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility of mind, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus. And we'll stop there, our reading of the Word of God this morning. At one time or another, I imagine we've all visited a great cathedral, uh, maybe in Europe, somewhere in Paris or Scotland or London, and I'm sure maybe here in America, maybe you've been to the National Cathedral in D.C. These amazing buildings designed for the worship of God are designed also to make you and me feel just how small we are. They're designed to make you look up at their cavernous vaulted ceilings and to shrink in our own estimation. They're designed to force you, to compel you to think little thoughts of yourself and great thoughts of God. And one of the most striking details about these majestic buildings is that by and large, we have absolutely no idea who designed them or built them. The carpenters didn't kind of, you know, lick their finger and kind of put into the wet cement balls, walls here, you know, 15, 16 or whatever. Nobody erected a plaque in honor of their builders. The motto of these men, these architects, seemed to have been, do and disappear. Or as Jim likes to pray, less of me and more of him. Do and disappear. In this spirit, a Christian minister once said, I was never of any use until I found out that God did not intend me to be a great man. Well, I wish I'd read that 30 years ago. I was not of any use until I found out that God did not intend me to be a great man. 
And in essence, that is the, the heart of the human condition, our problem. We tend to reach above ourselves to become greater, bigger, more significant than we really are. Now, in part, that's a natural God-given desire. We all long for satisfaction, security, and significance. We, we long to feel that our lives have mattered, that we've left the world a better place, that we've made the right difference in the lives of the right people at the right time for the right reason and to the right end. We want our, our families, our friends, our neighbors to love and respect us when we are here and to miss us when we're gone. Now, the problem, of course, for us all is that this yearning for significance has turned away from God. It used to be wanted to be great for God. And turning away from God, our desires, our thoughts, our priorities have turned in on ourselves. And a horrid self-centeredness has taken over our souls, your soul, my soul. As a result, we are now driven by selfish ambition, what Paul calls here selfish ambition, and what James calls in James 3.16, the same word, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Where selfish ambition and jealousy exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. And that dynamic of selfish ambition complicates and spoils all of our relationships now. It spoils our relationship with our spouse, our wife, our husband. It spoils our relationship with our children and their relationship with us. Our heart attracts conflict like Velcro attracts lint. James put it well in the next chapter, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, your lusts, your desires are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. Now, he's not, there wasn't a problem of serial, serial killers in the church in Jerusalem that James is addressing. He's speaking metaphorically. You can murder someone with your eyes, the rule of your eyes, which is the death knell of a marriage. You can murder your father with the rule of your eyes or a jab from your tongue, well-placed. You can murder someone with your words. You covet and cannot obtain, James says, so you fight and quarrel. And that's clearly a problem in Philippi. You've got Eudeus, uh, Eudia and Syntyche, or Eudeus and Syntyche, as one scholar likes to call them, uh, who are at one another's throats. And Paul's got, can you imagine being two ladies immortalized in every Bible ever written as the two fighters in Philippi? Selfish ambition is driving the preachers as well um, that uh, are trying to capitalize on Paul's imprisonment, trying to muscle in on his act and get a corner of the action in the pulpit. It's also a problem in too many of the men that Paul is trying to disciple. 
Timothy alone is exempt. Remember later in the chapter, he'll say in verse 19, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Where is selfishness at work in your life this morning? Was it spoiling your marriage, spoiling your relationship to your children or to your parents, spoiling your relationships at school or at church or at work, spoiling your efforts in ministry? You can be ministering here, and you think you're ministering for Christ, but then somebody stands in your way. Somebody redirects your ministry. One of the elders says, let's not do it like this. Let's do it like that. And suddenly, this little fist rises up in your belly. My ministry. At least that's the way it is with me too often. There's too much of me in our session meetings. Even when we want the right things, the respect of a wife, the love of a husband, the honor of a child, the pleasures of sex or food or just a quiet space at the end of a long day. We want the right things, but we want them too much or in the wrong way or at the wrong time. We want them now, right? That's always our time. It's so easy for selfishness in our hearts to take over, and what is a desire becomes a need. And then when it becomes a need, we think, I can't live without it. And very quickly, it becomes a demand. That's why we are so easily impatient with others. That's why we view others as a threat, a complication, a fly in the ointment, rather than an opportunity to give of ourselves. We see them as someone who stands in my blinking way. Are you aware of that dynamic? in your life. What are you doing to address it, and are your efforts working? How can you get less of me and more of Christ in your heart, or less of you and more of Christ? You can't, you can't have too much of your pastor in your heart, but you can't have too much of yourself in your heart. Well, Paul says two things in this passage. To help you battle selfishness. And really, the first point is the main sermon, and the, the last point is really the conclusion. So, don't panic if we're near the end and we haven't got to the second point just yet. How can you battle selfishness? Well, Paul says it's really a question of getting out of yourself and into God, and then getting out of your feelings and getting into your head. You can learn to think correctly. So, first of all, then, Get out of yourself and into God. And we see that there in the opening verse. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Now, for years that verse confused me. What on earth is Paul saying? It's one of those things that Peter said, it's hard to understand. What, what are you saying here, Paul? Any encouragement in Christ? Any comfort from love? Any participation in the Spirit. 
And then suddenly it dawned on me when I saw the Trinitarian framework of this verse. Notice Paul begins with the Son, any encouragement in Christ. He ends with the Spirit, any participation, any fellowship in the Spirit. And in the middle, he has any comfort from love. Whose love? Your love? Christ's love? No, the Father's love. You go, Son, Father, Spirit, which is the way Paul often goes, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, and the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be your portion. And so, Paul here, each of these adjectives are applying to the Trinity. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if you, if you glean any encouragement to press on when you're tired because of Christ, your union with Him, if you find any comfort in the Father's love, any fellowship of the Holy Spirit who exists to share the glory of the Godhead with you, from that comfort, from that fellowship, make my joy complete and put self to death. That's Paul's argument in Philippians chapter 2. Let's look through this, this Trinitarian framework, getting out of ourselves first and into Christ. If there's any encouragement in Christ, now the word encouragement is parakletos in the Greek, or it's connected to that word, and it's the, it's the, it's the word for the Holy Spirit. One literally para called alongside to help. Parakletos, alongside help, is the Greek idea. It's like when you're running on a cross-country race and you're tired, and you feel as if you can't go on, and then you, you come around the corner, and there's a group of your friends and family saying, keep on going, go on, run. And it, it, puts a, it relights the fire in your heart, and you think, oh, I'm tired. And then you hear the voice, keep on going, go on. Run, girl, run, boy, keep going. And you, you, you find encouragement. And Paul says, if you find any encouragement in Christ through your union with Christ, Paul says. Now, you can think about that in a general sense. What encouragement there is in Christ. Think of it like this. What discouragement is there outside of Christ? Outside of Christ, there's only discouragement. There's sin, and there's guilt, and there's shame, and there is certain death and eternal damnation, separation, alienation from God outside of Christ. But inside of Christ, what a difference. Everything that belongs to Christ now belongs to us. His wisdom, His righteousness, His holiness, His place in the Father's heart, His sonship, His glory, His throne are all ours. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.21 let no one boast in men. Remember in, in, in Corinth, they were all boasting, right? Um, who's the best preacher? Was well, Paul. No, it's Peter. No, it's Apollos. Some were saying, no, it's Kyle Lockhart. No, he hasn't been born yet. <laughs> um, the really spiritual ones were saying, it's Jesus. But they were doing it in a selfish way, ah, one-upmanship one way. And Paul says they're all wrong. You're being stupid, all things are yours. Don't boast in men, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God. Think about it, this world, every grain of 
dust, every diamond in a mine somewhere, every ounce of gold, silver, belongs to Christ. And in Christ, it belongs to you. He doesn't give it to you because it would spoil you, but it belongs to you. The present moment belongs to Christ. All across the universe, every second of every clock ticking, on Mars, Neptune, Artaris, every star, every second, every moment belongs to Christ. It belongs to you. The future, every future tomorrow, next week, next year, next decade, next century of all of human history belongs to Christ. And Paul says it belongs to you. Life belongs to you. Death belongs to you. Think about this. What a difference for an unbeliever. If you're here this morning and you're not yet trusting in Jesus, there's going to come a moment when your health will fail you, and the doctors can do no more for you, and death will come to the foot of your bed or the end of a broken, smashed car on a highway somewhere, and death will look you in the eyes and say to you, you are mine. What a difference for the Christian. Life and death are all yours, Paul says, because they belong to Christ. What a difference for Don Retallick, that old man of God, as he stood and death came for him. And he looked at death and said, death, you are mine in Christ. All the difference in the world, meeting death in Christ and outside of Christ. I think there's some encouragement there. Paul says, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places are yours in Christ. Amazing, every spiritual blessing. God has given all of the blessings He has to give to you. All of them. He's got no more to give. What He said to David, I give you this. I took you from the sheepfolds and made you king over all of Israel. And if that had not been enough, I'd have given you more. God can't say that to you. He's given you every spiritual blessing without reserve, without prevarication, without fine print on some legal document that disentitles you from all of it. You're the thousand, you've won a thousand pounds at Amazon.com. And you know it's not true. No, God has given it all to you, all of it. He's no more blessings left to give you. What an encouragement. You're joined to Christ and everything that belongs to him belongs to you. That's true in a general sense. But Paul here is actually saying this is an encouragement, not just to cheer you up, but actually to help you get out of your selfishness. That the encouragement here is not just to be feel better about yourself or your lot, but it's an encouragement to do nothing from selfish ambition, verse 3. To, to no longer look to your own interests, verse 4. To have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's encouragement out of selfishness. How does Christ and union with Christ encourage you and me out of our natural selfishness? Well, think of it like this. You are united Christian, you are united right now, right here, to the most selfless person in existence. 
Look at your shrunken little selfish heart, like a little puddle on the beach in, in a rock pool somewhere on this beach, and it's full of dead shellfish and rotting, horrible garbage, an old Coke can and a piece of chewing gum, and it's brown and brackish and horrible. That's your heart, my heart. A little rock pool. And then when you come into Christ, the tide of His limitless, shoreless, beautiful selflessness washes in and washes all of that filth out with each new wave coming in. There's more of Him and less of you in yourself. The one who was rich, vast beyond all splendor, and yet He became poor, poor, that you, through His poverty, might become rich. Think about it. The one who left the glory of heaven and the praise of angels and came down, 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 till there was no more down left to go. He's beyond the bottom of the bottomless pit. Beyond the end of endless ministry, misery. Beyond the limit of his human capacity to bear it when God made him into sin. Sin in all of its horror, in all of its appalling God-forsakenness. And he's abandoned. As no man has ever been abandoned before or since. He becomes the untouchable one, what Luther called that accursed thing hanging on the cross. The sun wouldn't even lend him the warmth of its rays. He suffered in outer darkness. His people abandoned him. His disciples forsook him and fled. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. They esteemed him as utterly worthless. And Jesus gave himself for that, for you. He denied himself all of the things that were his right, and he made himself nothing for you. And you can't believe that. You can't believe into that and, and not be pulled out of your selfishness, do you see? We've, we've all known people like that. Who, who, we, we're, we're around them, they make us a better person. Like Bernie Van Eyck, Ari's brother, and both great men of God, some of the most joyful men I've ever known. But I remember one time I was at Twin Lakes, and I was, I was annoyed at Bernie because I couldn't overcome him. He was actually arguing a position for covenant secession, which actually is a wrong position. And um, I, I, couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't beat him, though. I was trying to argue against his position in covenant theology, and I couldn't, I couldn't get there, right? But he was so kind. And because God wanted me to learn, me learning this lesson, I think, was more important for me than, than Bernie at that stage, seeing through his covenant theology error. error. And um, God needed to expose myself a heart. So I was, I was annoyed at Bernie because he was always overcoming my arguments. And, um, and then they were handing out books, these rare books that are hard to get. And when they got to me, they ran out. And Bernie beside me said, it's okay, Neil. 
you can have mine. And I said, no, Bernie, it's your book. No, Neil, it's better to give than receive, he said. (sighs) (laughs) Then later that day, they gave us a brown bag lunch, and we go out to the car to to go away and eat it somewhere. And I threw mine in the in the seat where uh, the footwell at the back in the back seat, and Matt Baugh, my good friend, who's now in glory, threw his laptop case on top of my lunch. And I went, Matt, my lunch. And Bernie said, "It's okay, Neil. Yours is squashed. You can have mine." <laughs> and I went on like that. Um, and it was it was agonizingly painful. I went on and on and on and on and. When I left the conference, I wept because his selflessness exposed me, how selfish I am. And Christ is like that, right? But it's more, he's not just an example. Christ is a life-giving, powerful Savior. Union with him doesn't have antiseptic effects. It has an anti-sin effect. Coming into union with Him de-sins us. It de-selfs us. It pulls us out of Himself, out of ourselves, and into Him. Think also of, of why Christ gave Himself for you. He gave Himself for you, denied Himself for you, that He might reconcile you to God and to one another. That was the joy that God set before him. That's why he endured the cross and despised the shame, that he might take you and you and join you together, right? To put an end to our sinful, selfish, quarrelsome ways. So you do realize, Christian, that when you and I fight with other Christians, we aren't just fighting with another human being. We are fighting against everything Christ is and Christ came to do for us both. Think about that the next time you fight with your wife, one of those silly little quarrels. I'm right. No, I'm right. No, I'm right. No, I'm right. My rights, my hurty feelings. In those moments, you're fighting against Christ's cross. You're fighting against His death. You're fighting against the agony. He denied Himself and submitted Himself to be stripped naked, naked, no loincloth, to have the skin torn from his back, to be spat upon and mocked. He denied himself the right of life, and he allowed a Roman soldier to put his big, sweaty, dirty knee on his elbow and hold a rusty nail against his wrist, and another Roman soldier to sledgehammer that through skin and tendon and nerve and bone. And when the onlooker said, he saved others, he can't save himself, Christ denied himself the right to come down off the cross and vaporize them with a look, because he said, the reason I I won't save myself is because I will save others. I will save you. And when you fight with your wife, you fight with your husband, you fight with your children, you fight with your parents, you fight with your brothers or sisters in this church, You're fighting against all of that. Oh, my rights, my petty grievances, Jesus says. I can tell you a thing or two about rights. I was the Son of God. 
I made myself nothing to become the sin of the world for you. Come. I think it's Christ's favorite phrase in all the world. Come to me. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man opens, I will come into him and I will sup with him and he, she will sup with me. Come to me, Jesus says. Let me encourage you out of your selfishness. Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on, get out of yourself into God the Son, out of yourself into God the Father and His love for you. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any comfort from the Father's love, if anything will pull me out of me and pull you out of you, it's a realization of God's love for you. That God is love at the very core of His being. It's not just, God, love isn't just something God does or that God is very good at doing, as if God was the best lover in all the world. No, God, at the very core of His being, His innermost nature is love. The Bible doesn't say God is wrath or God is holiness, and I know God is all of His attributes. That's true. But the Bible does say God is love. That His being defines love. You don't get, two men don't get to define what love is in a marriage. Two women don't, or a man and a woman. We don't get to define what love is. God is love. And love isn't an idea. It's not a political slogan. It's not a pop song. Love is a person, the person of persons, offering himself to you in fellowship this morning. That's love. Here, I think, is where the Christian faith abuts most closely to our insecurity. We wonder, how can God love someone like me? Someone like you. You ever wonder about that? We only think that way because we think that God loves the way we love. Our love flows toward goodness, beauty, and truth. We only love things that look good, beautiful, and true to us. Even sin. We only ever love sin because it holds out the painted appearance of goodness, beauty, and truth. We're deceived into loving it. Our love flows toward goodness. But God's love doesn't work that way merely. God doesn't just God's love doesn't just flow towards goodness, beauty, and truth. God's love flows from goodness, beauty, and truth. The old Scottish preacher Alexander McLaren put it beautifully, God's love is not drawn out by our lovableness, but it wells up like an artesian spring from the depths of His own nature. And the supreme evidence of that, of course, is the cross. For God so loved the world. Now, you and I think of the world as a big place. Wow, as if God's love can love all those billions of people. But John, in his theology, the world is not a big place, boys and girls. The world is a very, very bad place that lies under the power of the devil. 
a place inhabited by lost human beings in love with themselves and at war with God, entirely controlled by their own lust for pleasure, power, and their own reputations. A place that is a summary of all that is evil and noisome and ugly. And yet there's such limitless goodness in the heart of God that God can look at the world and love it. Not because it's lovely, but because He is lovely. All the way down to the bottom of His bottomless being. How does God respond to this world that loves the darkness and hates the truth? He sends His Son, His bright-eyed, darling Son, into this world. He sends Him to a place where He will be vulnerable to attack, where human beings can get their hands on Him and show what they really think of God. Do you ever think of the cross that way? The cross is a place on earth more clearly than anywhere else where you and I, human beings, get to show what we think of God and where God gets to show what He thinks of you. We think, oh, if I could get my hands on God, I'd kill Him. And we did when we could. And don't think you're any different. The Romans and the Jews were involved. Religious man, the Jew, and the political man, the Roman. These two great cultures, they butchered God's Son like a piece of trash. That's what men think of God. And on the cross, God gets to show what He thinks of you. He loves you. Not, it's not, the gospel is not that God loves you and has got a wonderful plan for your life. That's not the gospel. The gospel is you're dead in sin, and God loves you at the cost of His own Son. And He says, He is your life. Take Him. Paul Rees said, God so loved the world that He gave. And the giving with Calvary at its heart was not a trickle, but a torrent, a raging flood of life-giving mercy. And God didn't just give His Son as an, an example of His love, a love letter. No, God gave His Son as a substitute to stand in your place and for your sins, to be unreservedly abandoned to what I deserve and what you deserve in union with you. So, as Donald MacLeod put it, I just love this quote, God expresses His love for us not by putting another to suffer in our place, but by Himself taking our place he meets the whole cost of our forgiveness in Himself by exacting it from Himself. He demands the ransom. He provides the ransom. He becomes the ransom. Herein is love. And Christian, I'm here this morning to tell you that God loves you. With all of his being. His love for you 
never had a beginning. He chose you in Christ, Paul says, before the foundation of the world. That is, before there was a foundation for time, space, or matter to be built. In the vast outreaches of eternity when only God existed, the unchangeable God loved you unchangeably. There's never been a moment in God's eternal existence when He didn't love you. God never looked down and said to Himself, I'm going to love Peyton Smith. It's never a beginning. If that had happened, God would have changed. No, God has always loved you, Peyton. He's always loved all of you in Christ. He's never looked at you without also looking at you in Christ through Christ-colored spectacles. His love is eternal. Spurgeon says, God soon turns from His wrath, but He never turns from His love. John Blanchard said, God's hand is sometimes turned against us, but never His heart. C.S. Lewis, though our feelings for God come and go, His love for us does not. It is not wearied by our sins or our indifference, and therefore it is quite relentless in its determination that we shall be cured of those sins at whatever cost to us and at whatever cost to Him. Do you think that because last night you drank too much alcohol or watched porn again or some other sin again that somehow God will stop loving you? His love began in eternity. It reaches to eternity. Don't be so arrogant to think that your sin can turn it away or break it down or wear it out. And Paul says, when you think about how selfish you are, think about Christ. Go into Christ and what He did for you. Be encouraged. And then go into the Father's heart and feel the comfort of His love for you. How can I be so hatefully selfish when I'm so endlessly loved by my Father? And then, thirdly, go into God the Spirit. Out of yourself into God the Son, God the Father, God the Spirit. If there's any participation in the Spirit any of His affection and sympathy. Make my joy complete, Paul says. Now, the word participation here is koinonia in the Greek, which is the word we all know as fellowship or partnership. It's used to describe men who share in a business. It's a good friend of mine, and he has a business with a partner. And they have this wonderful agreement that they share the proceeds of the business 50-50, no matter how the other one does, which is a good thing because the way their business is operate, operates they have, they have different focuses, and generally in the year that the one is doing well, the other is doing very badly. And in the year that the other one's doing very well, the other one's doing very badly. But it doesn't matter who's doing well, they share the full proceeds of the business one with another. It's koinonia, it's fellowship. That's exactly how the Holy Spirit works. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit doesn't just mean He has tea with you, fellowship. It means He exists to share God with you and everything that is God's, everything, everything that is Christ, He shares it with you. Not in one big dollop, because you'd burst, which would be a bad thing, but over eternity, He shares all that Christ has with you. All that Christ has done. 
all that Christ has earned. He shares it with you. As you come to the Bible, as you come to the sacraments, as you come to the prayers of yourself, your family, your church, public worship, private worship, as you connect to God and Christ, the Holy Spirit's there, lolloping out Christ to you until the day comes when you die and you enter into the blessedness which Dawn has just begun to experience, and Hunter this year as well, experiencing more and more for year after year after year of all of the infinite fullness of God in Christ. All theirs. And Paul is saying, how can you be so selfish? Have, have you never experienced anything of that? So, how do you get out of yourselves? You've got to get out of yourselves first into God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Connect to God. And then you've got to get out of yourselves and, and, and out of your feelings into your heads. Notice how these next verses, I'm going to come back and finish this next week, but notice how these next verses, Paul's always speaking about the mind. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing, one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count, and the word count is an accountancy word, pun intended, um, leveling up a business, credits on one side, debits on the other, other side of the, of the ledger. Some of you love that, accountancy, balancing out the debits. Count, put yourself on one side of the ledger and other people on the other side. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying here, very briefly, is that like in so many other areas of the Christian life, in fact, in every area of the Christian life, the battle is won or lost in your mind. How do you become a selfish person? You allow selfish, self-centered, self-righteous, self-entitled thoughts to rule in your mind. Just feed your mind with little selfish thoughts. And how do you get out of yourself? Put those thoughts away from you and fill your mind with the mind of Christ. Now, I wanted to spend more time here, but there is no more time to do that. Let me just give you a flavor. We might come back to this next week. But in John 13... Christ is standing, teetering on the edge of hell, everlasting damnation, the darkness. Tomorrow he's going to become sin. He's going to become sin in the presence of God. The reverse of our justification. When we're justified, our sins are forgiven, and all of Christ's righteousness becomes ours, legally ours, truly ours. Well, tomorrow, all of your sins are going to become Christ in the presence of God. And the high priest had a, a golden um, plaque on his headdress that said, Holiness unto the Lord. Those words will become white hot tomorrow as Christ stands in hell, becoming the sin of the world. Now, how would you feel? 
Some of you, you come home from work and you've got a big day, to, in the, to, maybe an exam at school or a big meeting at work or a big presentation to give, and you can barely listen. Your wife's speaking about the new color she wants to paint the living room, and you can't even think about it. You get a, give them a headpiece. You've got more important things to think about than silly things like colors on the wall. And you, it, It's funny how pain and, and pressure and stress pulls us into ourselves. So here's Jesus on the edge of hell. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, the bitter end. Christ at the table, and there are disciples standing, and he looks down at their feet covered in the muck and manure of cows and dogs and the piss of horses. And he thinks, my friend's feet are dirty. I'll wash them. They're all sitting thinking, I'm not washing your feet, and I'm not washing his feet, and I'm definitely not washing Peter's feet. And they're all looking, who's going to wash? And suddenly Jesus is taking his clothes off and wrapping a towel around his waist and kneeling down and washing their feet with his hands. That's the mind of Christ. Have this mind in you which is is yours in Christ Jesus. We've got to learn to think a way we've never thought before if we're ever going to live a way we've never lived before. So how do you beat? Whenever the selfish thoughts rise up, I can't believe my husband spoke to me that way. I can't believe my wife spoke. Who do you think she is? And those thoughts, and you're about to get off to the races. What, what, what do you do? You think, how would my Savior think now? How did Jesus think? And let His, not just His example convict you, but His strength flood into you, your little small rock pool full of your Coke cans and chewing gum and brackish water, and you let the pure water of His selfless mind wash in and wash all of that muck out and fill you up with Himself. And you get out of yourself and out of your feelings and into your heads as you think and fill your minds with Christ. That's the answer. If you and I could just develop that habit, how would our marriages change? How would our relationship to our children change? Our homes change. This church change. There's so many, such, so, so many bitter people in the church pews and in the church pulpits. There's a friend of mine, every Christmas time, he puts up these things, like these really helpful posts like, we don't believe in Santa, we believe in Jesus. I'm thinking. And the Facebook posts at all negative stuff. It's like, me against the world, I'm a fighter. And it's all anger and aggression and negativity, and you'd, you'd, you'd never go to his church for a carol service. There's not one there, actually, but you wouldn't go even if there was one there. 
He doesn't believe in Christmas. He believes in always winter and never Christmas. I'm thinking, oh. And I, I want, there's, there's too much of that spirit in me, and I rather suspect more than enough of that spirit in you too. And Jesus is here this morning at the table. He's saying to you, come and let me feed you with a better way of thinking. I don't matter. Here's my body, Father. Break it that you might bring them together. Here's my blood, O Lord. Spill it that you might spare them. Don't spare me. If any man hears my knock, Jesus says, and opens the door of his heart, I will come in. Have you ever done that? Have you ever let Jesus into your heart? He's knocking at the door. Open the door of your heart to him today. Let him in. He's the Son of God. He's the Lord of glory. And you'll know his love and his mercy and his forgiveness as he makes you new from the inside out. And you'll learn the great lesson that the thing about Christianity is not so much in what we do or what we don't do. That's the way Satan presents it. And for the unbeliever, that's the way Christianity is. It's what you do and don't do. You don't chew, you don't drink, and you don't smoke, and don't date girls who do, and all that kind of stuff. No, it's not about what we do or don't do. They're not unimportant, but it's much more to do with what He has done. Come to me, Jesus says, and let me encourage you in the Father's love. Let my Spirit share me with you. It cost me everything I had to give to offer it to you, and it cost you nothing but the willingness to take, to have it for yourself. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord God Almighty, we come this morning. Thank you for Jesus, a willing Savior. Lord, draw near to us and give us Christ this morning as we bring this sermon towards a conclusion, this service towards a conclusion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.